to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Hey, good morning, Collective. Um, I just want to start off today by celebrating with you all some of the amazing things we got to experience last Sunday for Easter, because God is doing big things in this church, and uh, we want to share that with you. Last Sunday was the highest attended Sunday in the history of Collective in this building, as over 400 people came to celebrate Easter with us. I I got to hear incredible stories about people who'd been watching online for months, who showed up for the first time in person, stories of people inviting friends and and taking a risk and those people showing up. I even heard a story about first-time guests who brought other first-time guests, um, which is like the dream. Um, But just a few weeks ago, Outreach Magazine put out an article about how more than 80% of churches have attendance of at least half uh, of, of what it was prior to the pandemic. And you all feel this. You see it every single Sunday. That's not us. Um, And that is because you make Sunday morning a priority. It's because you trust that invitation matters, and you know that people need Jesus now probably more than ever. And the other thing I want to share is that last week we had to celebrate Rebecca at first service, and that was our ninth baptism for the year and our 112th in the history of our church. And so um, the reason why I want to share this is because uh, we're going to celebrate people being here, um, but it's one thing for people to be here. It's another thing to see people actually taking next steps, right? It's another thing to see people uh, owning their faith and choosing Jesus and choosing baptism. And the reason why this is great is because there are people here that are growing in their faith, and Collective is a place where that can happen. And so I just want to say thank you to you all, whether you serve here or you just attend here. You help make Collective a place where people can show up, where they can invite their friends, and where they can take next steps. And so uh, I love being a part of this church. I keep sharing more wins, but your ego is going to get too big, so let's move on for today. So growing up, I didn't have a real appreciation of art. I'm not sure why, but I was one of those really annoying people who would look at a priceless work of art and say, what's so great about a woman who's kind of smiling? Or they're just melting clocks. How is this priceless? Or who cares about water lilies? And you can go ahead and judge me. It's okay, um, because it actually gets worse. Not only would I act like art wasn't impressive, I was also one of those people that would say, I could totally do that. And I would say this even though I could never do that because I don't have an artistic bone in my body. Um, I am 36 years old. I still struggle to color in the lines. But I carried this mentality with me for a really long time. Um, And when I was in college, I met this really cute girl named Ray. And in getting to know her, I found out that she was a painter. So I quickly found an appreciation for all things art. The first summer we were dating, I took her to the National Gallery in DC. And as we were walking around, she was talking to me and teaching me about the art we were looking at and and what inspired these people and what type of art it was. And it forever changed how I view art. Now that we have kids of our own, uh, we actively try to make sure that our love and appreciation for art 
is something that's instilled in our kids as well. Ultimately, we don't want them growing up to be jerks like me. Um, so last summer, we took Elise and Harper to the immersive Van Gogh exhibit in DC, um, which I know a lot of you have been to. It's amazing. Um, if you haven't been, check it out. It's, it's here until May. Um, and our favorite part of the experience was this giant room that you'd walk into that had environmental projection on all the walls. It was like this 360 moving art display. And as we're sitting on the floor watching the images come and go, Van Gogh's most famous painting was featured, Starry Night. Ray shared with us that Van Gogh painted this while he was in a psychiatric hospital in France. It's because he had the, a mental health episode that resulted in him cutting off a piece of his ear, which many of you know about. But she also shared that she loved this painting because it was in his interpretation of his view outside of the window where he was staying. And it was just so inspiring that he was able to create such a beautiful masterpiece during what is a terrible time of his life. Then I shared with my girls that my favorite part is how the light radiates from the moon and the stars and even the planet Venus, which is kind of in the middle there. And then Elise, our six-year-old, said, I wonder who lives in those houses. Do you think it's a mom and a dad? Do you think it's his mom and dad? Now, some of you probably noticed the house with the lights at the bottom of the painting, but some of you are like me and you barely even noticed them, right? Your attention was drawn to other things. But this was the best part about taking the girls to the Van Gogh exhibit. It was their perspective. They saw things differently than I did. And while I had noticed these homes in the valley, I never thought twice about them. Right? I didn't ask who lived there. I didn't wonder why they were up so late at night. I didn't think about how they were viewing the same night sky that Van Gogh was looking at and what it might have looked like to them. Right? I had my own perspective, and that was it. But sometimes, if we don't get another perspective, we miss some of the important details of what we're looking at. And that's why we're starting this series today called Prodigal. This sermon series has actually been one that I've been conceptually dreaming about uh, for about 10 years. And while working on some sermons at a previous church, I got inspired to preach multiple weeks on the same story in the Bible, with each week coming from a different perspective. About two years ago, I was listening to a pastor named Louis Giglio teach on the prodigal son, and that's when it hit me. This is the story. So here's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. We're going to read the story of the prodigal son each Sunday, but while looking at a different character. And I promise you that it won't feel boring or redundant because the story really is that good. Uh, besides, just think of it like you're rewatching The Office multiple times, which you all do, but focusing on a different person, except Pam. She's the worst. Can't convince me otherwise. Don't like her. We can talk about it later if you like. So let me start by giving some context to the prodigal son. This story is a parable that is told by Jesus. And parables are stories that have spiritual lessons. Over one-third of Jesus' teaching was done in this style. Scholars have commented that although the stories that Jesus shared seemed simple, the messages were deep. Because Jesus used topics like farming and agriculture and food and interpersonal relationships to teach about forgiveness, redemption, mercy, and grace. In Matthew 13, Jesus actually explains to his disciples why he uses parables so much when he says this, he says, that is why I use these parables, for they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. And so Jesus spoke in parables because he understood that not everyone has the same life experiences, and stories are a way to connect. 
Ultimately, Jesus simplified his teaching to help people better understand what he was trying to share about the kingdom of God. And in Luke 15, in the Bible, Jesus tells three stories and three parables about things that are lost becoming found. And the spiritual lesson for all these parables is that God loves outcasts and sinners. That's that's the theme. God loves people like us. It starts with a parable about a lost sheep that wanders away and a shepherd who goes out to find him, to bring him back. Then he tells a parable about a lost coin and how this woman does everything she can to find it. And once she does, she rejoices. And then he tells a parable about a lost son, which is what we're going to read over the next few weeks. And as we read through part of the story today, here's what we're going to do. We are going to focus on the youngest son, the prodigal son, pretty much the main character of this story. And so this is how the parable begins in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. It says this, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And so the son essentially tells the father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I could have my money now, the thing that you worked really hard for that you're going to give to me, but I can't get until you're dead. Die so I can take it and I can move on. And for some reason, the father doesn't fight him. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't write him out of the will. He doesn't disown him. He actually does what the son asks. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. The phrase wild living means that he was living a life that was utterly and shamelessly immoral. But here's what's really interesting about that phrase. The word that's used in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, is asotos. And the root of that word is the Greek word sozo, which means to save. And so because the alpha is in front of it, it actually implies the opposite of the root word. So he was living a life that's the opposite of being saved. It was dangerous. It was reckless. It was leading him on a path toward death. And this is the life that he chose for himself which is really important, right? He made these decisions. He chose this on his own. Putting it bluntly, he chose a life of sin. He chose to do life opposite of what God wanted for him. He walked away from his father. He walked away from God. He chose wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And so this is rock bottom. Not just because he doesn't have money, not just because he's homeless, not just because he's hungry, but also because he's Jewish. Jewish people don't eat pork or even touch pigs. And because of that, he was now unclean. He was dirty. And this is the lowest that he could get in his life. He was in a pigsty, looking at the pig food, thinking they've got it better than he does. Have you ever been there before? This is when you've gotten to the point in your addiction that you don't have any friends or family around anymore because the lies and the manipulation and the dysfunction have hurt them so much that they've given up on you. This is when your wife walks out because she found out that you cheated again. This is when you lost another job because you can't show up on time because you spend all night on your phone watching those videos that you know you shouldn't be watching. This is when you get to the point in your life where you've pushed God so far away that you can't even feel his presence anymore and you're stuck wondering, what's the point of living at all? It's the moment after the suicide attempt. 
after the knockdown, drag out screaming match, after your child tells you that your anger and your abuse created wounds in them that they can't seem to heal from. It's after he took advantage of you, after you get caught in the lie, after you realize that your decisions have brought you to a point in your life and you don't know if you can ever recover from them. And if we are being honest, every single one of us has had a moment like that. Right? I feel like I've had multiple of these moments in my life. The most recent was last year uh, when I just got to a point where I realized I, I just really wasn't happy anymore. Right? The pressure of leading a church in a pandemic in a culture that honestly just hates Jesus. The stress of being a parent of two kids, one who is doing virtual learning, one who is two-year-olds, and two-year-olds are the worst. Uh, the wounds from my childhood that wouldn't seem to go away no matter how much work I did kept seeping into my marriage and my leadership and my friendships. The sadness I felt as people took out their own sin on myself or other people that I love. And so I started to shrink away and pull away, and I got to this place where I wasn't reading my Bible anymore. I wasn't taking my wife out on dates. I wasn't giving her the time she deserved. I wasn't focusing on my children. And I began to function out of this sinful place of bitterness and anger. I began to pull away. And I felt in that moment broken and stuck and hopeless. Right? It felt a lot like sitting in a pigsty thinking the pigs have it better than I do. Have you ever been there before? Right? That's the son. That's what he's going through. But then this happens in Luke, 7, in Luke 15, verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. Right? And you can just imagine him sitting in this pigsty, rehearsing what he's going to say to his father, right? editing it and tweaking it because he wants it to be perfect because he's afraid his dad will say no. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Right? And this is the moment of truth. He has no idea how his father is going to respond. Will he turn his back on him? Will he act like he doesn't even know him? Will his father do what so many of us do when we know we've been right and someone else has been wrong? And we say, I told you so. Right? Will he punish his son and make him a slave? No. This is what the father does in verse 20. It says, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Right? And don't overlook this moment. In first century Middle Eastern culture, men didn't run. Right? And they didn't run because running would have required that they actually hitch up their tunic that they were wearing. And this would have caused them to show their bare legs, which in that culture was humiliating and shameful. Right? Men didn't do that. Fathers didn't do that. It was unbecoming. But the father did not care because he saw his son who he loved. So he ran to him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But then his father interrupts him. His father says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Well, there's more to that story. We're going to pause right here. We'll, we'll pick it up next week a little bit more. Right? And so Jesus told this parable to a group of people to explain what God's love for us is really like. Right? He told it to people who are prodigals. We are the lost son. Right? We have chosen to live life our own way. We have pushed God away. We've sinned. We've made terrible decisions and ended up at rock bottom. 
But for some reason, God gives us grace. Not justice, not mercy, but grace. And this is really important um, because Christians actually screw this up all the time. Justice is getting what we deserve. For the son, justice would have been being punished for wishing his father was dead, then taking the inheritance and ruining it all. And in that culture, it would have been arrest or uh, maybe even death. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That's what the son was hoping and praying for. When he says, treat me like one of your hired servants, he's saying, please don't give me what I actually deserve. Please give me mercy. Show me mercy. But grace is getting something better than we deserve. Right? Grace is quick. Bring the finest robe and put it on him. Grab a ring for his finger. Kill the fattened calf because we are going to party. And that's what this story is about. Not justice, not mercy, but grace. The same grace that Jesus came to live and die and resurrect for. The same grace that Jesus wants us to experience today. And so here's the first thing I want you to write down about this story and this perspective of the prodigal son. Now, if you're new to collective, um, one thing you'll notice is that people here like literally take notes. And that's not because I have anything worth saying, but because God does. And so from time to time, you'll hear me say, write this down. And that's because I think you should write something down. It really is a simple system. And so I just want to encourage you to write this down, uh, take out your phone, take a picture of it, burn it into your photographic memory, whatever you got to do. But here's the first thing for today. We need grace. We need grace. Grace is endless second chances. Grace is life-changing and life-giving. Grace doesn't make demands, it just gives. Grace is recklessly generous. It doesn't use sticks or carrots or time cards. It doesn't keep score. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It's one-way love, and there is no catch. There are no loopholes that disqualify us from grace. Grace is not contingent on what we have done for God, but what God has done for us, because there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And I know we struggle with this. Some of you feel very uncomfortable about grace right now. My dad is a follower of Jesus, but when we talk about God or heaven or forgiveness, he will say, hopefully I've been good enough. But that is not how God works, because that is not how grace works. It's not about our goodness, it's about God's. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for, doing good, for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Right? Grace is the difference between Christianity and all other religions. In fact, grace is the difference between Christianity and just the world. Author Philip Yancey says, there's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Paul says here that grace is a gift from God that saves us. No other religion offers that. Other religions encourage sacrifice and service and rituals of purification to attain eternity in heaven. They all believe that some human effort can achieve favor with God. That salvation can be earned if you knock on enough doors, give away enough wealth, do enough good deeds, say enough Hail Marys, or stay away from enough sin. And the common thread in all of this is that they believe that a human effort can reach God's height. But Christianity alone moves in the opposite direction. Right? Rather than us climbing upward toward God, Christianity asserts that God moved downward to us. Salvation is not accomplished through human effort, but offered through God's sacrifice. 
And that is why we need grace, because it's grace that saves us through our faith or our belief in Jesus. It's not something that we can earn for ourselves. So grace is not clean yourself up, then come to Jesus. Grace is not do the right thing so you can earn it. Grace is not three strikes and you're out. Grace is endless second chances. And grace is for everyone. Grace is for the spouse who holds a grudge, even though they promised they would never do that. Grace is for the woman who got pregnant outside of marriage and for the guy who bailed. Grace is for the student who lies to build their social status. Grace is for the man who chose an affair. Grace is for the hypocrite who claims Jesus publicly but privately gossips in order to hurt other people. Grace is for the person who knows they screwed up but haven't found the humility to apologize yet. Grace is for the addict who's still addicted. Grace is for the selfish and the insecure. Grace is for the heart of heart. Grace is for the arrogant who, don't, who think they don't need grace. Grace is for the legalist who don't like grace. Grace is for a son who wishes his father was dead then takes his inheritance and blows it on sex, drugs, and wild living. Grace means that you can come to Jesus and find new life, no strings attached. Grace means that you can be made new, made clean, made perfect, and forgiven, and you don't have to do a thing. Now, grace is obviously not a license to sin, right? And it's not grace only because we also need God's truth as well. And if we have this attitude, it actually proves that we don't grasp grace or what God wants for us but I just know what it feels like to be at rock bottom and think I don't deserve a second chance, right? that I can't go home, that grace has run out, but it hasn't. We need grace. Now, here's the second thing I want to point out from this story. We have to come to our senses. Right? We have to come to our senses. Remember what happens to the prodigal son. He's at rock bottom, jealous of the pigs and the life they are living, and then he has this moment Right? It's like an epiphany where he just snaps out of it. It says this in Luke 15, verse 17, when he finally came to his senses. Right? Whatever it was, maybe it was looking at the food, maybe it was longing for home, maybe it was realizing that nobody actually cared about him. He comes to his senses and he goes back home. He realizes that being a slave for his father was better than living the life that he was currently living. Right? It was in the lowest moment of his life when he realized that his choices put him there and something needed to change. And remember for him, this is a complete risk, right? It's a risk for him to go home back, back home to his father because he doesn't know that he is going to experience grace. Remember, he was praying and hoping for mercy, but he was expecting justice. But that's why Jesus told this story, because he wanted us to understand what type of God God is, that God is a God of grace. But we have to come to our senses, right? This is the moment where we realize that we can't do it alone, it's the moment we realize we need a savior because we can't save ourselves. It's the moment we realize that God's love for us is unconditional and it doesn't matter how sinful or lost or broken we are, his love is always there. It's the moment we realize that Jesus' grace is enough. It's the moment you realize that the football team in Washington has changed their name three times in three years, but you're still rooting for the same garbage team. Maybe it's not that, but seriously, come to your senses. I'm speaking to myself, you know, moving on. Right, but you, you get what I'm saying. In coming to his senses, the prodigal son gets up, he turns back to his father, and he heads home. And some of us have made that journey before, and it is a hard one. And the truth is, it's an ongoing thing. Right? There are moments in our life where we are going to realize that we are not doing what God asked us to do, and things are not going well, and we have to come to our senses again and again and again. In our marriage, in our parenting, in our faith, and our confidence for who we are and who God is in our life. In the book, No More Dragons, Pastor Jim Bergen writes this. 
He says, regardless of your circumstances, beginning the process of becoming whole is entirely up to you. The Holy Spirit is prodding you. He's tapping you on the shoulder. He's whispering in your ear, but you have to decide whether or not you are going to listen. You are the one who needs to change your mind. You are the one that needs to stop making excuses. And he says, if you decide to change your mind and quit making these excuses, Jesus won't look at you and say, good, now it's on you to figure it out by yourself. Right? Jesus doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try a little harder, think positive thoughts, then everything will work out. But what he says is that you alone are responsible for taking these small steps toward changing your mind and ceasing your excuses. And when you do that, Jesus will give you sufficient strength and direction in order for you to keep going. Jesus will never tell you to find strength and direction on your own because that's impossible, right? You don't have the strength necessary to fix your life because if you did, you would have done it by now. Then Bergen concludes by saying that strength that we need comes from Jesus. And so it's time for us to come to our senses. It really is. It's time for us to decide to get up out of this pit we're in and turn toward God because he's waiting. He's waiting to forgive you, to love you, to embrace you, to celebrate you to give you grace. If you stick around in collective long enough, one thing you'll notice is that we talk a lot about baptism uh, and we celebrate it big every single time. This story is the reason why. This story is the reason why we celebrate baptism the way we do because at the end of this, this is the last thing the Father says in Luke 15, verse 32. He says this, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. As a church, we celebrate when lost people get found because God celebrates the same thing. In fact, in the parable just too earlier, it says that heaven opens up and celebrates the same thing, right? And that's what baptism is all about. So to all of you who feel like you are a prodigal today, the ones who feel like they're searching, the ones who are choosing to live a life of destruction, the ones who are at rock bottom, the story is a reminder that we have to have this moment where we come to our senses where we get up, we turn around, and we come back home and accept grace. And if you are ready for that, if you are longing for that, if you are in that place, the thing we encourage people to do every Sunday is to check the baptism box on their digital connection card. You can also head out to Next Steps and talk to somebody there. But what we want to do is we want to talk to you this week about what does it look like to have this moment where you turn back toward God and turn back toward grace. Before anyone gets baptized at Collective, uh, after they check the box, what we do is we call them um, because we want to spend some time hearing their story. And the truth is, the stories always have a similar feel to the prodigal son. This story is probably a lot like yours. There's always pain. There's always sin. There's always this rock-bottom moment. There's always hopelessness. And then there's this moment where people realize something better must exist. So they start pursuing God in faith, hoping maybe Jesus is the answer. Here's what one person shared with us before she got baptized. She said, my life was spiraling out of control. My children had suffered abuse at the hands of my ex-husband just as I had. I was spending all my time and money fighting to keep them safe, but I wasn't utilizing the most powerful resource I had. I wasn't trusting in God to help me. In fact, I was cursing him about everything that was happening. But one day I showed up at church, I started praying, I started learning about grace and endless second chances. And a few months later, I decided I was ready to stop trying to control everything and let God guide me instead of me attempting to carry everything on my own. And she had this moment where she came to our senses, where she realized the way that she was doing life and the way she was trying to be her own God wasn't working. She turned toward Jesus. 
And so we have to come to our senses and we have to accept the grace that God is offering. It is not too late. You are not too lost. Other people might have given up on you. You may have even given up on yourself, but Jesus has not given up on you. John 1, verse 16 says this, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This is why at Collective, we call it endless second chances, right? It's not just grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And if you are a follower of Jesus, grace is what sustains us. Grace is what holds us up when we are weak. Grace is what gives us the strength to keep going in our marriage and in our friendships and in our family and in our faith. And if we have that grace, we have the ability to survive this world that is full of ungrace. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, this is why you need grace in your life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that when he's praying to Jesus, he's asking Jesus to take away this pain from his life, this feeling that he has that's like pulling at him, that when he prayed this, Jesus responded by saying, my grace is all you need. My grace is all you need, grace upon grace upon grace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much um, for grace. God, for endless second chances, for, for something better than what we deserve. And God, thank you that your son Jesus shared this story with us. Because um, God, the truth is we all, we all feel like prodigals. God, some of us feel that way right now. Some of us are in the middle of turning back. Some of us, uh, to be honest, are moving toward destruction and death. Um, many of us have had the moment where we've turned back toward you. And this story reminds us that as we turn back toward the Father, grace is there. God, that we don't have to be afraid, that we don't have to beg for mercy because your arms are extended to embrace us and tell us how much you love us and to give us grace. So God, I pray this week for everybody here that is really struggling um, with their faith or with you, um, God, with whatever they're doing in their life. God, I pray that this is a week where they come to their senses, where they realize that the life that they are living isn't the one you want for them, and you have something so much better. And God, for people here who have said yes to that grace, who have chosen you, have put their faith in you, God, I pray that today in this story is a reminder that every single day there is grace. Grace when things are going well, grace when things are not going well. God, and that your grace picks us up, it keeps us going, it's what sustains us in this world that honestly just exists to beat us down. And so God, we're just so thankful for grace. God, we understand that we don't deserve it, that we are lost, we are broken. Um, we've made a ton of terrible decisions. But God, we are so thankful that you continue to offer this thing to us that's so much better than anything the world can offer. God, thank you for your love for us. Uh, God, thank you for this story. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.